That was pretty poor, to be honest. I was hoping for better than that. Good evening. Excellent. Are you glad you're at Spring Harvest 2008 One Hope? Fantastic. Thank you for being here. I'm sure we're in for a great, great week. Um, I have to speak on a passage from John, chapter 8, verse to 11, 1 to 11. So if you want to have your Bibles open, if that's helpful to you, um, you may do that. The Lacey Theatre Company gave us a beautiful rendition of this story. Round of applause for the Lacey Theatre Company, please. And it's my privilege to kick us off in this week of One Hope, which I hope will be a fantastic week for you and the people you came with, whether that's a group from your church or your family, whether it's you on your own, you with a friend, however you're here, whoever you meet while you're here, we hope that this week will be a fantastic week. And I hope at the end of this week, you will have little or nothing to complain about. And with that in mind, I wish to make a complaint. My complaint is this, in the style of a letter to points of view, why, oh why, oh why, are we starting Spring Harvest 2008, One Hope, with this passage? John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. You see, at Spring Harvest, as Steve said ever so eloquently at the beginning of this celebration, we are coming to the end of an epic journey, a fantastic cosmic trilogy through the story of the Bible, the big story, one God, one people, one hope. And we come now to one hope, the grand climax, the great finale of God's story. This week is meant to be about a big finish, a happy ever after. It's about God's infinite, eternal hope for the world, for you and for me and for the whole of creation. Which leads me again to question why some drongo chose John chapter 8 verses 1 to 11 for the first night. I think we're in danger here of getting off on a, a bit of a false start, if I'm honest. You've heard the passage acted before you. It's a tricky passage. Some of you no doubt have been asked to speak on this before or run a home group on John chapter 8, 1 to 11, and you've pulled a couple of commentaries off the shelf or borrowed them from your church leader, only to find that in most commentaries on John's gospel, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11 doesn't appear. There's various questions about how it fits into John's gospel, and so most scholars either leave it out or put it in the appendix at the end. What's more, and more importantly, my complaint for this night, we're meant to be discussing hope. And this passage is pretty hopeless. So maybe we're off to a bad start. I promise I'll do my best. And hopefully, by the end of the evening, we'll be somewhere. But it's a challenging start for Spring Harvest 2008. You know, what the text does do really well, maybe depressingly well, is give us a picture of God's people in action. I remember a conference I went to, maybe one of the most exciting conferences I've ever been to. It was a conference about the future of the church, and particularly about how the future of the church required the church to bring up new leaders, emerging leaders from new to younger generations who could kind of reinvent and reimagine the church in a rapidly changing world. And it was, a, it was one of those conferences there was a buzz about. I noticed it tonight. When you came into the top, you can sense it. When there's a buzz here in this top, that people are not just coming for a conference. There, there's an expectation, a hope, an anticipation that God's really going to do some stuff. 
And this conference had a, that sense of expectation. It was palpable, maybe more than any other conference I'd ever been to. So much so that some great leaders had come, some great leaders, elder statesmen of the church had come because they wanted to input and listen to younger generations. Great Bible teachers, great worship leaders. I remember Graham Kendrick was there. And on the other half, there were lots of young leaders who were kind of exciting and passionate and wanting to learn from older leaders. And so you also had worship while it was partly led by Graham Kendrick, also by Delirious. And there were great speakers who were doing new things in youth work and youth church. And there was this huge kind of picture of the church, young and old, coming together, trying to find out what it meant to be the hope of the world in a very, very challenging context in the West in the 20th century. And so there was this kind of expectation. And I never forget, every session, something weird happened. It was good. But in the last session, we came in to a tent like this to find there were no seats. They'd all gone. And we thought, something strange is about to happen. And sure enough, someone got to the stage and he said, right, I want all the old people on that side of the tent and all the young people on that side of the tent. It's nothing like dividing your audience to begin with. And so those who kind of, I can't remember what, I, I do actually remember that old was considered anyone who was born before 1970. <laughs> <laughs> Which offended a large amount of people. But I was glad because I just got into the young section. So we were there and they said, right, what we want you to do now is we want the old people to go and grab a young person and then drag them around the building, run around the building, holding them, pushing them. It's a prophetic sign that the older generation aren't going to allow this younger generation to become apathetic. They're going to push them on to the great things that God has for them. And sure enough, these old guys are dragging these young guys around the building and it's a bit bizarre, but we're going with it. Then they say, stop! Right, all the old people over there, all the young people over there. And we parted again. Right, we want the young people to grab an old person now. And we want you to drag them around the tent to say that you're not going to let them slow down in their spiritual growth. You're going to take them forward into all the things that God has for them as leaders in the future. And so sure enough, all the young people grab the old people and they're charging around. And it's bizarre, there's Zimmer frames going and people's <laughs> false limbs falling off and falling oh it was and I was just eventually I was both exhausted and bemused and I remember standing back and as I stood back to try and survey this incredible picture of of the church of God in action I remember hearing this blood-curdling cry and I turned to my right and I saw two punk rockers storming towards me head to toe in leather with piercings and and tattoos and Mohicans on their heads and they're coming towards me and I think any minute now I'm a dead man so I jump out of the way and they charge past and do you know what they were dragging Graham Kendrick with them (laughs) and Graham Kendrick is being dragged around Make way, he's saying, make way. (laughs) It's a great picture of the church. Some of us want to run to be here, run to be in church. Some of us have to be dragged. Although I don't think Graham's ever been dragged to spring harvest. And in this passage, we see at the beginning, the Pharisees running to get there. Chapter 8, verse 2, they're there early morning, early doors. They're there at the beginning of the day. They can't wait to be in the temple. And why not? You know, these are the guys who own the rights to hope. These are the guys that, despite the difficulties of Israel's time, the Roman rule and the oppression that they're under from Caesar, 
These are the guys that have held on to hope. They hold it in their hearts. It doesn't matter who rules the land because the law of God rules their lives. And as such, God, Yahweh is their king and the kingdom of a God is alive and well in them. They own the rights to hope. And what's more, on this day they find Jesus there and they're anxious They're anxious to see whether his hope cuts the mustard, whether his hope is as good as their hope, as powerful, as important, as holy as their hope. And so they drag this poor woman with them and they cast her before him. And they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 8 verse 4, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Clever, 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 clever. See, if you're looking to test Jesus out, if you're trying to find out what kind of hope he's about, whether it's all kind of free love, easy forgiveness, cheap grace, this is clever. You know, Jesus now has to stand up and speak against the law of Moses if he wants to save the woman. And he's bound to want to save the woman because he's nice, Jesus. He's loving to these outsiders. So now for him to save the woman, he has got to contradict Moses, the law, and God himself. And then Jesus offers this incredible response, an even cleverer response than the question laid down, a stunning response. He falls to his knees and he starts writing in the sand. To this day, we we have no idea what Jesus wrote in the sand. Some say he was doodling. You know, like you're kind of not really paying attention to someone. You're kind of drawing a picture and just talking at the same time. He's giving them the contempt they deserve. Some say that maybe it was the alphabet, A, B, C, taking them back to basics, saying they've missed the whole beginnings, the whole understanding of God's law. Some say he was doing maths, because that's how you taught maths in the first century in Palestine. He's adding up their sins. Hypocrisy plus prejudice plus pride plus conceit plus judgment etc, etc. Whatever he was doing, it adds up to the same message. Those of you without sin, you throw the first stone at her. You see, for some of us, finding real hope is about discovering that we're hopeless. That's what Jesus wants to say to the Pharisees. You're as hopeless as her. Let's just admit it. Let's get rid of the farce and the pretense. You know, we come to spring harvest, whether we're a speaker or a guest, and for some of us, that involves kind of spiritual delusions of adequacy, that we're kind of good enough. Steve and I arrived a day early, and uh, we got up at 3 a.m. this morning and uh, to pray through the delegate list and prayed for each one of you by name. And then after that, felt we deserved, you know, some breakfast. So we went into Minehead for some breakfast. You know, these leaders here to speak and encourage you with hope this week. And we were very busy talking and we went to this cafe or what we thought was a cafe. And it's only halfway through our breakfast, so busy were we talking, that we realized, and I'm not joking, that every surface of this cafe, from every part of the ceiling and wall, hung or stood a witch. Now, just before you're worried, not a real witch. They were pictures and little statues and little dolls to the point where there was a life-size witch hanging 
flying on a broomstick across one of the walls. Now, we had entirely missed this. <laughs> Despite the fact that the tea was made in a cauldron, was green and bubbly, and the waitress looked like a member of the cast of Harry Potter's latest film. And uh, we'd completely missed this thing, and we suddenly realised, hang on, we are respected... Well, not respected, we are spring harvest speakers. And we are sitting here in the Harry Potter coven, having our breakfast, what happens if anyone else walks in? And sure enough, two other spring harvesters walked in. Hello, very nice. I think they were regulars. But <laughs> it's just hopeless, isn't it? In all seriousness, while I was preparing to come here a few weeks ago, one morning I went away to prepare some talks and I, well, I, I just walked to the local park and I opened my Bible and I read one of the passages. And I was thinking, how can I inspire you with hope? In the next 20 minutes, I don't know if it was God or me or somewhere, I don't know, but all I was aware of was just how hopeless I am. With just how ridiculous my life is. With just how many times I fail. No matter how many times I try to get this thing right, I get it wrong. Just how my life so easily caves into all kinds of hopelessness and temptation and frustration and inappropriate comments and all kinds. Of, and I just thought, Lord, I'm, you're, you're, you're preparing me to speak to these lovely people about hope. And yet, here I am hopeless. You see, in the darkness of this passage, there's something for us to find. And, and that's just simply that sometimes if we want to find hope, like the Pharisees, we have to come to that admittance that first of all, we're pretty hopeless. And as Danielle said in that beautiful picture, we have to just drop those stones. The adulteress didn't run willingly into the temple. She's dragged in there, a bit like Graham Kendrick. There's no hope here for her. She wouldn't choose to go there. The temple, like many churches, is a great place for those who want to pretend to be hopeful. It's not a great place for those who want to admit that they're hopeless. And then this amazing thing happens. Having been told that she could be stoned, she watched Jesus not respond against the Pharisees and the scribes, but fall to his knees and do this doodling. And you can almost imagine, did she stand there and just close her eyes and wait for the faux stone to hit her? It's a beautifully stage-managed moment from Jesus. You can imagine the tension building, her eyes closed, her, her fists clenched, waiting for the first agony of the agonizing death. And then suddenly to open her eyes to see that people are walking away. Maybe there's no one even left. And Jesus straightening himself up and saying, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, a few years ago, um, I went to Russia. It was quite a lot of years ago that Iron Curtain had just fell and I went on a, a mission trip. We went to this hospital near St. Petersburg and it was a pretty bleak hospital. People were very much suffering from terminal illnesses and we were going around a group of Salvation Army sort of people from the United Kingdom. We didn't speak Russian and obviously many of the people dying didn't speak English and so we were there to bring some kind of hope and we just didn't know what to do. And I remember myself and a friend called Hamish by this bed of this old lady, the skin sort of hanging off her. She was entirely grey. It looked like any breath could be her last breath. 
And we thought, what do we do? She's Russian, we're English. How do we bring hope in this situation? And it was Christmas time. We looked at each other and we both had the same idea at the same time. And then we leant over and we said, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And we could see that maybe a tear was starting to form. We could see that she was deeply moved. There was something she needed to express. And she called across the Salvation Army missionary that we were working with who could speak Russian. And she whispered this message in her ear. These guys are very depressing. Have you got any other Christians you can send to me? <laughs> you see, the end of this story is quite depressing. I mean, there might be a sense of relief. She doesn't get stoned to death, but it's cold comfort if you're honest. Jesus doesn't forgive her. He doesn't say, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. He just tells her to go away. I mean, she gets away with it. She doesn't suffer condemnation of the Pharisees, but there's self-condemnation. There's the pain and the guilt that she feels for all the rubbish in her life. There's, there's, there's the consequences of the sins that she's committed and what that's done to her existence. There's the sense of low self-esteem and hurt and guilt. That's all still there. And all Jesus says is, go away and sin no more. And to be honest, that's not a message of a hope. How many times have we heard that message and tried to put it in action to find it hasn't lasted for as long as it took us to get home? The ending of this story is not hopeful. And so tonight we come together and we read this and say, well, what does it teach us? Well, firstly, it teaches us that we all hold hopelessness in common, but this is Spring Harvest 2008, one hope. Aren't we meant to be more hopeful than that? Isn't the ending of God's story meant to be about hope? This isn't hope. This is someone getting away with it. You see, we need to read on. We just need to read one verse more and everything changes. Everything looks different. Because in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus speaks again to the people, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, chapter 8, 1 to 11 is entirely the wrong passage to start Spring Harvest 2008. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 12 is the perfect passage for us to start Spring Harvest 2008. Because the woman stood under judgment at the beginning of the chapter. But by chapter 12, she not only goes free, she not only gets away with it, but she realizes she has felt the full force of God's light. She realizes that she doesn't just get away with her sin, but in fact, she, she experiences the very light of the world shining down on her. A light that is big enough to bring forgiveness. A light that is powerful enough to convey God's mercy. A light which is beautiful enough to contain his love. A light which brings hope to the hopeless and changes them forever. 
And this is where the story ends. This is where the woman's story ends. Not that she gets away with it, but she met Jesus, the light of the world, and received the opportunity of following him, of stepping into his light and walking with him towards hope. And having seen the full force of God's hope at the end of this story, we want to look right back tomorrow, well, on day three, to the beginning of God's story. And follow it through to the end, to the hopeful climax. And so this week we're going to remember God's big story. We're going to retell God's big story. We're going to reenact God's story and find that at every step along the way we find Jesus, the hope of the world. On day two we'll look at hope on a hill where this story of hope for us begins as Christians with the Jesus who dies and rises for us. On day three, we'll look at hope in a garden, the hope at the beginning of the world, the hope in Genesis, the hope with which God begins his plans and purposes for creation. On day four, hope out of town, the hope which forms God's people as they march away from Egypt and become his promised people and his promised land. And then on day five, hope in the city, looking at God's final hopes for creation when he makes all things new and a new heaven and a new earth come together. We step out from the hopelessness that we all have in common. From this point on, we step out into the light to follow Jesus, the light of the world, and to allow his hope to invade our lives so that we can bathe in his hope. I had the privilege of writing some of the materials for this year, and with this I conclude. I coined this little phrase, it's about two years ago. I was trying to think, what do we really want people to take away from Spring Harvest 2008? And I coined this little phrase, learning to live hopefully ever after. That was it, you know? If we get in our cars in a few days' time and we know that we've learned to live hopefully ever after, that would be an amazing hope in itself. But I have to confess that when I came up with the phrase, I just didn't know what it meant. It was just a clever phrase. And in the last 18 months, I've had the privilege of watching my own church pastor teach me what that phrase means. 18 months ago, Nicola Garnham, who pastored the church that I am part of in the Salvation Army in, in, near Wimbledon, with her husband, Nicola, well, with husband Philip, sorry. Nicola was um, diagnosed with cancer. And uh, it has been painful and a huge privilege to journey with Philip and Nicola through what have been very difficult days. And in that process, Nicola has taught me what that phrase means. She has taught me how to live hopefully ever after. By the way, she was bathed in God's light every single day, no matter how much it hurt. By the way in which every hospital ward she was on became a congregation, a church plant, a group to her to pastor and evangelize by the way in which she continued to pastor our church from her hospital bed, often sending texts and making phone calls when she really should have been thinking about herself. 
through to the way that she ministered to the doctors and nurses who were there to minister to her. And only a matter of weeks ago, Nicola went to be with Jesus. We committed her to God in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. And on the Sunday afterwards, our church had to figure out, what, what do we do? What do we do? Do we have a prayer meeting? Well, that was my suggestion because I'm one of the conservative, uncreative members of the team. Well, fortunately, someone less conservative and more creative said, well, Nicola loved to walk in the park. So maybe what we do is we go to Wimbledon Common, the whole church on Sunday afternoon, we just go for a walk together. And it was one of the most remarkable experiences of my life because the whole family of God met and we went for a walk. And kids threw balls and kicked balls around and then threw each other around and kicked each other around. <laughs> and parents walked and talked and remembered and told stories and laughed and cried and prayed. And in it was the perfect picture of the church. Not a bunch of people dragging each other around a tent, although that was fun. But a group of people who came together with a sense of hopelessness but said, no, we've got to step out from this point. We've got to follow Jesus. We've got to step into his light. We have to take hope because that's what Nicola taught us to do. I told you at the beginning that there aren't many great commentaries on John chapter 8. There is one great commentary on John chapter 8, 1 to 11. It's a painting by the artist Rembrandt. And he depicts the woman caught in adultery in the most powerful way. It's difficult to see even if you're close up to the painting in the National Gallery, but on the PowerPoint, it's even harder. But you only need to know one thing. There's darkness all around the temple, and darkness falls upon the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, to understand a Rembrandt painting, you have to look for where the light falls. And the light falls on the woman, who's honest enough to say, I am hopeless and yet experiences Jesus, the light of life, shining upon her. Rembrandt realizes you need verse 12 to make sense of the first 11 verses. And so this week, as God's people, we pray, God, shine your light upon us, that we can move on from this point, that we can step into the light, that we can follow you, that we can walk with you, and that we can discover your hope.